Hello again, stackers. This is Rhett. With me is... Thane. And that is all you need to know. I was about to launch into my full name and my lineage and my social security number and everything. Well, I'm glad you stopped. And I'm also glad we have the magic of editing. So last week, if you'll remember, stackers, we talked about Thane's efforts to create a constructed language, a conlang. And what was that language called? Witan. Witan. And in that episode, you mentioned that you were uh, interested in not only the language, but in your mind, the people that could speak that language. And those are? The Witani. And what was the, again, the, the genesis, the inspiration for Witan? Well, I've always kind of liked Old English, the way it sounds, the way it flows and all that stuff, plus uh, Scandinavian stuff too. So it's essentially like an off-brand version of Old English with a little bit of Scandinavian, like Swedish, Norse, etc., Finnish sprinkled into it. And so that's kind of the feel for the language I'm going for. With the people, I'm trying to model them kind of after the Rohirrim from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so if you remember the horse people that lived down in the southeast corner of Middle-earth, nearest or close to Mordor, uh, to to Saruman's Tower, actually the wide open stretches where they could get their horses out there and ride. And so they were the protectors of the East and they rode out there and and basically protected a a vast plain land section of Middle Earth, keeping it free for their people. Mm -hmm. If you've seen the movies, uh, you'll notice that there's a lot of motifs in their armor, on their weapons, that sort of thing. A lot of knot work that's reminiscent of the kinds of things that you would see looking through a text on Anglo-Saxon artwork and design. Definitely. Yeah. Just, just the kind of feel I'm going for. Good. Okay, so last time we talked about the language. This time I want to focus more on the people. So who are the Witani? That's uh, an interesting question, really. So I've focused mostly on the language, and so I do have some things about who the Witani are, but um, for the most part, I just focus on the language, so this may be a bit shorter than the previous episode. We'll see. So the Witani are a collective of people, actually more accurately referred to as the Witanic peoples. Uh, They live more on the uh, northern edge of, I think it was... So the Witanic people are part of the Katarii people, which is just kind of a name given to a just group of what are called barbarians by the Voratian Empire, which is basically Rome. Uh, so the Witanic peoples, plus a couple other people that I have really just like not bothered working on at all yet, are just kind of a collective of barbarian people who are really more barbarian because they're not Voratian. And that's... That's that's really the big distinction. The big distinction. Either you're Voratian or you're not. And you're not. You're, you're a barbarian. Yeah, essentially. And so is that name applied by Voratians to these people, or is that a name they have taken on themselves, barbarian? Voratians to the people. Okay. And it's... I get the impression that it would be much like in actual Rome, where they called anyone not Roman barbarians exactly as almost like a lesser people mm-hmm. okay so this is a a proud people that's out there in the wilderness and they're they're likely chafing against this this yeah. name thrown on them basically so imagine you've you've basically got the anglo-saxons who are out there we've kind of progressed england a decent bit but they're basically during the time of rome it's a weird mix but they're a warrior people 
they're very tough they're strong they value horses a lot it it's it shows up a lot in their artwork their mythology horses are sacred animals they use them a lot in aspects of daily life and war and travel etc they're actually uh among the qatari people they're kind of the ones who are big into husbandry and animal domestication in the previous episode you mentioned that there almost seems to be a an inescapable link between language and people. Mm-hmm. What you're describing now, does the word horse or variants of horse-related stuff show up a lot in the language as a result? Because these people, you're saying they're all about horses. Mm-hmm. I would presume that there would be a lot of horse-related language built into their language almost. There is, except that I haven't really developed it all that much. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so they, they do have the word uh, wista, which means horse and the name that they actually call themselves by, the Wetani, actually comes from the verb wit, which means to ride. Okay. So they're they who ride. And so maybe like a warrior would be a horseman or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what it was uh, in a... Uh, I'm currently revising the language a bit as I'm copying it into a new notebook. But in the previous revision, which I'm thinking of translating over, was uh, a warrior was known as, the, as an Angloist or like... Horseman, man with the horse. The Watani don't really have much of an organized military other than just, you know, it's kind of just what a man did. If you had a horse and you had the gear, you were known as a warrior. You had to have some kind of training behind you. That was just kind of expected in Watani society. Watanic society, sorry. You have a larger people of which the Watani are a subset. Mm Mm-hmm. Do they live kind of separated from the larger group, or do they are they integrated in some way with this larger group? I mean, they kind of live in a heathland that's just largely untouched by the other groups, uh, which live more in the stepland on the edges and farther north and closer to the coast of okay. the sea with a generic name. <laughs> the Sea of Water. Yes. Is this... Again, because of the focus, the emphasis on horses in their language and horses among the people, is this a nomadic society? Do they generally wander from place to place within their territory, or is it that they're largely settled, but they kind of branch out from time to time? Uh, kind of both. In the, uh, in the earlier, uh, so I'm working on Proto-Watanic right now before I really start focusing on morphology, but Proto-Watanic was what they spoke during the times when they were more of a nomadic people and so with their affinity with horses and husbandry and domestication of animals they did do a lot of uh, moving around a lot of nomadic living uh, beforehand and as the Voratian empire sprang up of course they were kind of the picture of civilization and whether the Watani liked it or not they the society was influenced by these people who lived in definite houses and built walls and whatnot and so they have a couple of definite settlements, more made out of wood and thatch and all that stuff. You know, what's available to them. And, you know, you have kings with their mead halls and all that stuff. Beowulf type things. Yeah, that sounds very much like Beowulf. Uh, when the Voratian Empire really started rising up and becoming a bit more of a threat to these barbarian peoples, the Watani are found as having actually kind of broken up into a series of petty kingdoms that are more at strife with each other, which actually makes them very susceptible to the encroaching empire. 
Now, I get the impression that, again, I think this may be me tying it to the Anglo-Saxons, the historical Anglo-Saxons who were of Germanic descent. Mm -hmm. I see this group of people as being more resistant to the larger empire, the civilizing influence of the larger empire, maybe almost to the point where they spurn those who take on characteristics of the Voratians. Am I right in that? In later parts, yes. So, you know, as Voratian influence grows, at first they take up on the whole building and settling down and farming and all that stuff. But as the Voratians really start proving themselves to be more of a threat than just another neighbor, then that's when the Watani really start trying to resist Voratian influence. So that's when I'm seeing, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm seeing that once the Voratians really start rising up, there's almost a bit of a renaissance of Watanic culture and really just Qatari culture overall among all the different barbarian peoples. Some of them kind of melt into the empire, whereas others definitely kind of become much louder, much more distinct. Fighting actually might even spark up among the different barbarian people as they try and really assert their individuality. Would there be almost a, a popular movement among the Witani to try and put aside the petty differences and stand united against this larger threat? Perhaps. There might be some who try and say a united uh, Witani people is a strong Witani people, but then there might be others that say, well, we need to be like we always have been, and we've always had these small little individual kingdoms that all register under the name of Witanic, and so there might be that division among them as well, maybe even leading to a civil war of sorts. Okay, so that was an idea that came to mind. Also, are there any notable figures, maybe something almost like an Arthur who rose to, as a strong leader, centrally gather them together to resist? I think so. On a Google Doc that I have somewhere, I did make a note to myself about a future change in the language, probably when we hit more classical botanic we lose some of the more fricatives like the voiced and unvoiced th sound so we lose the th and the th and the the which are replaced by a more solid t and d sounds for ease of communication but also to kind of unite the different dialects under a king that i gave a name to but i forgot what his name was that's okay aside from that do you have any notable figures in this culture that you've developed, even if only partially? I think so, but none of them come to mind. I know another particularly um, important king would, in earlier days, when first kind of banding together Wotanic people into one of the petty kingdoms, gave rise to the uh, first kind of universally accepted greeting gesture among the Wotanic people. So we here, we wave at people. I you know, for whatever reason, see a person I know, and so I feel the urge to raise my hand and shake it at them, which is apparently polite. But what the Watani do is they take the right hand and they put it palm facing outward on their foreheads, which is a symbol of giving my hand, my actions, uh, and my thoughts, you know, my forehead, to you. Almost a symbol of submission that has kind of lost the meaning of submission over time and more is just it's kind of like saying hi, but also, how can I help you? It's really interesting. Uh, so many of our social customs, traditions, if you really think about them, they don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. Shaking hands. Where did that start? <laughs> well, I can tell you that. 
to show that you had no weapon in your hand. That's why you shake with your right hand oh. traditionally to show I have no weapon in this hand and so you can trust me. Okay. It's not as common to shake with your left, but I've heard that that is almost a more intimate handshake simply because now you're also lowering your defenses, hmm. which was, of course, traditionally, again, where the shield would have been carried. Makes sense. Yeah. Who knows? That may or may not be the case. After writing all that stuff about the whole hand gesture, I kind of sat back and chuckled at how clever I was. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the neat things about the creative process. Every now and then, when you just take a moment to sit back and think about just how much you've put into what you've just created, mm -hmm. it is a satisfying process. It, and honestly, is there are just times where you know I'll have a flash of inspiration, I'll write it down, and then I'll just kind of sit there like, that was neat. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're finding this a rewarding process. It honestly is. I, of course, there will almost never be a satisfactory completion. I will probably die before I'm completely satisfied with how much I put into Witan. But at the very least, it will be little blips of joy throughout, unless I decide to end up working on a different language or something like that. And that might be the case, but that's okay. How about folklore? Do the Witani have any stories that you've created so far that maybe explain facets of themselves or the world around them? Not yet. But related to folklore, I do kind of have a little bit of a theology for the Witan. Now, do tell. <laughs> let's talk about religion. It's interesting. The Witani don't necessarily have a god. They don't have a deity. They have an entity that they believe in, and that entity is fate. You see... Across the different mythologies, I've always found the whole idea of the fates as an interesting one. Uh, usually, uh, like in Greek and Norse mythology, you kind of have just the three different fates that either sow or weave or spin the lives of men. And so I just thought it would be really interesting for the Witani to have not a god or not a pantheon of gods that they believe in, but more just an overarching fate being that they call Firtha, or Firtha, I can't, I can't remember. It's more leaning towards a female figure in the way they depict her in art and whatnot, but th according to their theology, she weaves the lives of men in tapestries of horsehair, of course, and then burns it when it's come to its end. They pray and offer sacrifices to her to more ask for a more favorable fortune than others. So they believe a lot in luck and good and ill omens and maybe even a little bit of fortune telling almost. Okay, neat. I'm trying to think of different aspects of a culture. How about food? What kinds of foods do these people eat? Especially given that they live on presumably a fairly open land, maybe not a lot in the way of orchards or crops or safe places to keep livestock, that kind of thing. What, what kinds of things do they subsist on? I have a feeling that at least in the more proto-Atanic days, they lived on a more hunter-gatherer type thing, as, as um, most people would. But then as voracious influence started kicking in, maybe they started, you know, at least along the edges of the heathlands that they live on start focusing on agriculture, start growing that hearty comfort food almost. I'm kind of thinking like 
all, almost like German food in in a sense. You, you got lots of meat and potatoes and just that kind of warm stuff because you know the wind really gets going on these heathlands. That so I'm almost thinking cold. like uh, in South Africa where you have the kraals, K R A A L, mm-hmm. which are basically like temporary enclosures that herdsmen make. Where it's imagine taking thorny vines and making a wicker wall out of them. So you can make it out of the stuff that just happens to grow right there. You weave your enclosure that's large, just large enough to hold your flock at night. You close the little wicker gate, go to sleep. In the morning, you wake up, your sheep are all still there. You open it, let them out, and they go on. But you've used all natural materials. Uh, and if something happens to it after you're gone, no big deal. There's more that grows. Mm-hmm. So that kind of idea... That can be translated over to the wood townie because, you know, on these open grasslands, you know, you could have brambles or thickets that kind of grow here and there, which could be used for such a thing. Yeah. And then as far as farmland goes, again, in my mind at least, I'm seeing rolling hills and that sort of thing. Is it land that's conducive to farming or is there a lot of work that needs to be done to prep the land? For the most of the heathlands that they live on, land is not very arable or not easily arable. However, closer to the edges, especially closer to the southeastern parts of Witani country, there's uh, like a river that serves as a natural border between them and some of the other Katarii people. And so you have a, uh, a lot more people farming on that part of Witanic territory. Which I could see being then... A much more heavily settled area. Definitely. In part because that's where the food is, but also in part because you need to protect it. Mm-hmm. You need to have more people there to make sure that others don't swoop in and take it from you. Yeah, because we need that food. Exactly, because without it, we're sunk. But or, I can also yeah. imagine a hardy warrior people who, when necessity requires, they burn everything there. They retreat into the relative safety of this wide open land and, that they're masters of. Yeah, and with with their ability to tame horses, which is actually kind of kind of their special thing among the different Qatari people. Like one of the more northern ones that lives on the shore, they're more known for their ship building mm-hmm. and whatnot i'm thinking they've got more scandinavian than english in them so they've kind of got more of that longboat looking style to their shipbuilding. but the the witani at least they are the horse people they are they who ride and so uh out in these open plains they've got their horses they've got those strike and retreat tactics they focus on mobility and the ability to hit hard and then run well based on that what kind of armor do they wear i'm thinking Light armor that is also protective. And so at first, I'm th- uh, maybe some of the more wicker armor that they take from whatever they can find. But as metallurgy gets developed, then they start uh, making more like chain halberts and stuff like that. So it's still relatively light, but it's got that flexibility that you want. But it's also fairly protective. You c- it can turn a sword blade at the very least or a spearhead, maybe. If it's mithril. <laughs> yeah i mean okay. if it's more of a glancing blow maybe yeah i see a lot of kind of that norman knight look with the with the nasal with, yeah the nas the nasal guard the conical helm the hauberk the kite shield the the lance that's kind of the traditional warrior's kit maybe it's maybe a sword too if you're if you're really rich okay well let's talk about the warrior's kit so you mentioned kite shield in your mind uh, some kind of riding spear. 
Yeah, because that's how fighting is done for the most part among the Watani. It's a lot of horse combat, and so you want a good shield that protects you from people coming at you on horse and on foot. And you also want that nice reach with the spear. Some people also use the bow in some cases. Uh, I could see an axe being a very handy weapon to have, not only because it's good in battle, but it would be very useful for out on the move. It's utilitarian. Yeah, exactly. I can use it to chop up kindling for our fire. Oh, and it'll cut down a person just as easily. Just as easily. (laughs) So, yeah, axes, swords, and spears are the three main weapons of the Watani. And they use kite shields for some of the more mounted uh, guys, but if you don't have a warhorse, a uh, circular shield will do just fine uh, for more shield wall fighting. Do they have any specialized troops? Uh, for instance, one of my favorite accounts is of the Batavians, the Batawi tribe in what is now the Netherlands. Under Roman rule, they didn't pay tribute. What they paid was men as soldiers. And so there were Batavian cohorts that accompanied Roman armies. But what they were known for was being able to swim across a river at full tide. So the river is flowing at full speed. They would move across in formation, wearing full armor and arms. And they would come out on the other side. I mean, I can just see these guys dripping, coming up out of the river. Oh my goodness. On the other side, ready to do combat. Instead of having to break down everything, float their gear across, get across, get dressed. Oh, hold on, hold on. Wait, let, don't, don't, right. don't attack us yet. Hang on. <laughs> okay, <we're> now. <laughs> okay, yeah, now let's fight. I mean, imagine seeing that coming across at you. And then when they come up, they're absolutely ready to fight. Is there anything like that in your mind for the Witani? Um, at least not in river crossing capabilities, but I do think that kind of the, uh, the shock cavalry shock. I mean, you hear that thunder of hooves and you just see a great dust cloud coming across the plains at you. And all you can see is just a line of bristling spears. And you know that one of them's heading right at you at full speed uh, on a very scared animal that's coming straight at you. And so that's kind of the main thing about the Watani. I think also... That's really the only thing I can think of that really fits in with the people. Although, you know, the the good old uh, swordsman, he knows his way with the blade. He's got that shield and he really can just hold his own in conflict as well. That's kind of the classic hero, although the spear is actually a lot more preferred because you have that range first. In Witani society... Is the number of horses you own a sign of status? Definitely. Okay. I forget what the phrase was, but to call a man many-horsed was to call him rich. Okay, very good. It's about the same thing. Especially in the case of a warrior, would having different types of horses also be of benefit? Like, here's my heavy horse for charges, here's my light horse for quick riding. Definitely. Okay. The really rich soldiers, more like the lords and, and kings and nobles and those kind of folks, would have a lot of horses that were bred for different purposes. So that brings to mind the question, when armies move, what does that look like? Do they have a mounted contingent that is just moving and then there's like almost like a wagon train behind them of these other mounts that they have? You know, what? How extended do these armies get? Or are they fairly compact? I'm thinking you have uh, most of the guys on horse who are going on at a nice casual pace so as to not exhaust the horses. 
But then you've definitely got a baggage train and maybe after the baggage train, the poorer soldiers who are proceeding on foot. Okay. And I almost seem to think that they might have developed at this point a specialized kind of wagon that could be used to almost make like a mini encampment, fortified encampment at the end of the day to keep the baggage inside, to put the uh, the extra horses and so forth. And of course, you'd need to carry lots of forage because you wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed that there would be stuff for your horses to eat at the end of a long day's march. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, I could see this being very interesting to try and work out. How organized are they? Or do they, true to the traditional idea of barbarians that we talked about earlier, uh, do they just kind of wing it? Uh, I think it's kind of a mixture of both. It mostly depends on which one of the petty kingdoms you fight for, because that also determines it. So some of the richer, more advanced ones do definitely have a lot more tactics with logistics and setting up encampments that are better, they're more easily defensive and whatnot. But some of the lesser petty kingdoms is a lot more just, we're, we're stopping here, go find yourself a place to sleep. It's all about who's in charge, right? Essentially. Yeah. Okay. And are there any ruling houses or sections of the Witani that stand out? You keep talking about petty kingdoms, and I just wanted to see if you had any in mind or if this is just something that maybe cropped up in our discussion. Well, none that I have really named yet. Uh, I do have, uh, I'm thinking maybe six or seven petty kingdoms uh, among the Witani. But I'm thinking the most renowned group of people among the Watani are priests of Firtha. Because these people are the oracles, they're the holy men and women, they're just the important figures that you listen to and they have something to say because, uh, as is the belief of the Watani, these people speak on the behalf of Firtha. Now, the world that I've created these people for is a very low fantasy setting, so it's is magic real? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's more of a thing of myth and legend, but it perhaps could be real. I, I just haven't really decided yet. And these priests, are they landed? Do they basically reside in a particular area and minister there, or are they kind of itinerant? Do they move around? Uh, Much like the druids might have in Celtic society. Some roam around, others take up residence on particular holy sites uh, in, a, in a little particular shrine that they build there. So it usually consists of a small house for the the priest or prophet to live in, and then a small shrine to Firtha. And what does a shrine to Firtha often look like? Ooh, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that. No, that's fine. I was just curious. Good. And kind of tied in with the warrior mentality and the artwork and so forth, I wanted to talk specifically about music. What kind of music do you see this people as having? What's the basic kind of sound? Skyrim music. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I can just hear the the uh, uh, White Run song playing as I walk into a Witanic town. I mean, it, and I see a lot of Witan houses and towns being built much like Whiterun, kind of up on hills that stick out of the uh, surrounding countryside because that's a lot more defensible. They maybe focus more on palisade walls 
that surround a more centralized keep. Okay, so that's kind of the the living conditions, but what about the music? But the music definitely is a lot of string instruments because you've got horsehair to make, to make the strings out of. I can just imagine, you know, the first guy to invent the stringed instrument was just some bored stable hand who would stretch out one of the horse's tails and start plucking on it. He was like, wait a second, I could do something with this. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, at least traditionally early on, much of stringed instruments, the strings were made out of intestine. Warrior race, warrior race people. (laughs) if If this was a people that relishes the idea of using everything available to them, no part of any animal they kill would go to waste. Everything would have a purpose, a use. And I could almost see that being of great benefit to an army moving on the road mm-hmm. or, you know, out in the wilderness. Yeah, some guy, you know, that you get a rabbit and he's like, hey, guys, save the intestines. I'm making a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I'm guessing that a lot of Watanic music is very stirring, very, very uh, raw kind of stuff that really hits the heart and the stomach. It's got that epic saga that's another big thing. Um, stories are very important to the Witan, which is why I've made absolutely no stories yet. But that's going to be a big thing. They, they have a lot of stories about kings and warriors and deeds of renown and great feats that have been achieved. That That's how they record stuff, because at least at first they don't really have much in the way of writing. Maybe they depict stuff through art and through song and that's all they have until voracious influence with threading systems starts to spread okay yeah and that's not inconsistent with the spread of anglo-saxon so for the longest time a lot of the celtic languages of course were mainly oral tradition where things were passed on through memory and through speech eventually the germans did introduce the runic writing system and so a lot of Early, early Germanic and Celtic texts that we find are done in very angular writings, mm-hmm. uh, like the Ogham runes or traditional Futhark runes. I'm thinking of coming up with some kind of runic-looking alphabet for uh, some of the earlier uh, versions of the Witan writing system. Yeah. Any notable literature? I know we talked briefly about folklore. I didn't know if literature was a different thing. Any books that you've created titles for or formative tales or anything like that? I have not yet done mm. that, but I really do think that I really have been wanting to do something like that soon because uh, just, that just fits so perfectly with the people I'm trying to create. I mean, you look at these early civilizations. We have Gilgamesh, the epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. We have Beowulf. We have these vast stories that are very rich in detail and really open a window to that past uh, it'd be neat to have a similar story for your Witani because that could really help to make them feel alive too. Mm-hmm. I know we have basically treated this like a Creation Corner episode in the traditional sense <laughs> in that we took some of your ideas and you hadn't necessarily thought about all of these points before, but I think there's a lot of good in pushing at each other like that to try yeah. and tease out new ways of thinking. And, and between the two of us talking, we're going to come up with something. I've gotten a lot of ideas through this. Great. Great. And so um, we'll, again, try and share any little links. I guess we didn't really mention any links in this particular recording, did we? No. Nope. No. Sausage links, maybe. 
Well, maybe we can link to a video or two from the Skyrim soundtrack. <laughs> Basically. And maybe some photos from the movie, from the Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. to give you some ideas of the artwork and or armor that the people wear in the movies. I did want to say before we wrap up this episode, again, to reiterate, I don't know that I'll be able to keep everything in, but would you be okay with me putting the Witani somewhere in Vardalon? Oh, definitely. Okay. I would, I would love to just be able to randomly flex my language on our listeners. So I'd have to adjust things. Definitely, yeah. I, I know You have some in, empires and so forth. Empires and whatnot that wouldn't exactly fit in the setting that we've created. Right. But I think the kernel of the idea is there. The people, mm -hmm. the culture, the lifestyle, all that sort of stuff is there. So it'd be a matter of working it in. And you and I can talk more about that as we get closer. Indeed. Okay. Sounds like you put a lot of work into this. And again, every time we do this, this was only about a half hour's worth of stuff. But we have gone over a pretty wide-ranging number of details about this people, some of which I'm sure you haven't thought about before. But just through our discussion, we've been talking about it and bouncing ideas back and forth. And none of what I talked about you're necessarily going to include because it's your creation. But at the same time, it's just fun to share these thoughts and kind of poke each other. So like I said earlier in this episode and in the last episode, we are quickly coming up on the official start of our second season. Thanks for being patient with us, and uh, we appreciate any comments you have. Did you learn anything from talking about language last week and culture this week and about the interplay between the two? Let us know about it. Share it with us on Twitter and Instagram at StackoDice, and we'll be sharing pictures in both of those locations as well as check our show notes for links to other things. And we will see you here again next time, next week for Season 2 at Stack of Dice. Basically, after they at least gain enough, in, uh, enough of the influence. Okay. <laughs> Stop.